Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be continuing in our series that we've referred to as Stories, the Goal of Discipleship. And if this is your first Sunday with us, kind of a quick summation of that title is that as we've been walking through elements of the devoted life, we've been talking about discipleship and how that shapes our identity as believers. We are disciples who make disciples. And so as we've talked through those things, we've we've acknowledged that the real goal of anything related to discipleship has to be a story of transformation, right? That our lives should continually be changed. We should continually be transformed by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And we should be able to point to those elements of transformation. But at the same time, we're compelled to go and make disciples of others. And we should see transformation in the lives of other people. And so goals of discipleship always come back to that same result, stories of transformation, And so we want to keep that front and center as we go through this series, but we've talked about other things. We've talked about how not only does it shape our identity, but it takes us both to the believer and the non-believer. Discipleship includes evangelism. It includes teaching. It's the whole spiritual experience, right? It's the whole Christian experience wrapped up in the Great Commission. We've introduced some common language in terms of what we see as kind of essential components of discipleship here at UBC. The discipleship should always have elements of community and teaching, accountability. We want to promote those things and encourage those things. Last week we talked about the three arenas where we try to provide those things like corporate worship, this gathering that we have right here, our Sunday connect groups that is traditionally Sunday school that meets prior to this service, our discipleship groups that we're launching later this month that gives us an opportunity to meet in a more intentional and intimate setting, that all, all three of those arenas have strengths and weaknesses, which is why we advocate for all of them in order for us to truly grow as disciples who make disciples. So this has kind of been the the thrust of our series as we've been walking through the last part of Acts chapter 2, and we're going to continue into the next phase of that this morning. But before we do, I want to give you an illustration that kind of helps set the tone for our discussion today. So uh, my wife is a nurse by trade. My stepfather was a pediatrician, uh, and so I've always grown up in homes that had medical professionals available. And uh, I always got some form of medical advice along the course of my life. And, And oftentimes what you discover is that it's not just about diagnosing sickness. It's not always about just treating ailments and healing people that are hurt, but a lot of it's preventative care, right? It's promoting good health and and health uh, care and and, and that sort of uh, uh, preventative care that we want to make sure that keeps us healthy. And so just recently, not too long ago, my wife and I were sitting around the table and we were talking about these elements as she was getting ready to, to go back into nursing. And she said, you know, it's all pretty simple when you think about it. Promoting good health. It's really kind of three things that all seem to be somewhat related. If you, if you sleep well, if you stay active, and you eat right, more often than not, you're going to be able to maintain some level of health, right? And, and it's true, right? That's a, that's a pretty good, simple explanation. But how many of you are like me? As easy as that sounds, and as logical as it sounds, it's not always easy to actually do. Anybody here sometimes just struggle with sleeping well, and you wear yourself out? You stay up too late, okay, right? I'm not alone in that. How many people, you know exercise is good for you. You know you should do it. You know you're going to feel better once you do it. But still, it's so hard to get off the couch. How many people struggle with staying active and exercise? And then eating. Come on now. I know I'm not alone in this one, right? We know that we need to eat healthy, but there's so many times that we just fall victim to unhealthy eating habits. Um, A couple years ago, Jennifer convinced me to go through one of those cleanses. It was Whole30, and it's one of those things that just kind of eliminates certain things from your diet. And, but prior to going through Whole30, I, I always liked fruit, okay? But I wasn't ever craving fruit. You know, you take a bite of fruit, and it always 
kind of tasted a little bland to me. And part of that was because of all the other desserts that I like to eat in my life. And so when I go to Whole30, one of the things they eliminate is added sugar. I like sugar, and I especially like it when it's added to the food that I'm eating. And so having to eliminate like ice cream and cookies was not a fun thing for me. But about halfway into this cleanse, all of a sudden one day I took a bite of fruit, and it was like packed with flavor. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I didn't know it was so sweet. And so it kind of reminded me of how so many of the foods that we have are just packed with flavor. I, I've been reminded of this recently with, you remember all these like crazy menu items that food companies and restaurants now make available for us? Like they're always trying to create new ways to invent new flavors. I remember the first time I was ever really kind of awestruck by this was, I think it was in high school, it was the double down chicken sandwich. I think we have a picture of it. The double down chicken sandwich at KFC. You guys remember this thing? It's like, hey, let's get rid of the bread. Let's give you extra chicken. And, and I remember sitting there going, really? Is this where we are now? And, and so not to be outdone with themselves, even just as recently as the summer, we're on our road trip and we go into KFC and I see their latest menu creation, which was the chicken and Cheetos chicken sandwich. You guys seen this thing? Right? Who's hungry? Right? Okay, we got some applause there already. Okay, and then that reminded me of, I think it was Krispy Kreme or somebody else that did the hamburger with the donuts for bread instead. This was our attempt to just consume a heart attack in one meal, all right? Um, and, then, and then fair food is obviously one of the, the, the kings of, of creating different flavors. A couple years ago, I'm at the fair, and I found the cotton candy taco. You guys seen that thing? Something tells me there's just a little bit of added sugar to this one, right? Just a touch. Uh, Lay's potato chips never wants to be outdone with their creations. They often come up with crazy flavors. Uh, a couple that I found this past week would be the chicken and waffles potato chip. And just to make sure you have numerous breakfast choices, they also included biscuits and gravy as a potato chip option. Uh, Oreos has always been a leader in creating new flavors. You got the jelly donut Oreo, which is an option which I thought was fairly unique. And then the last one I want to show you this morning, Spam Oreos, right? That one's actually fake, so don't worry. It's not real. But I saw it, I was like, I gotta show it to him anyway, okay? Because we wouldn't be surprised, would we? We'd be like, yeah, okay, it makes sense. The point is, here's the whole point to all this, right? We see all these things. You do not need to go to a doctor. You don't need any sort of scientific research to go in and say, you know, doc, I'm not sleeping very well, uh, I never exercise, and I really love baked uh, potato chips that are biscuits and gravy. Is that healthy? Right, you don't need to ask that question. We know this isn't good for us, right? We live in an environment that's constantly trying to get us to, to do things that are not good for us. And so easily, sometimes, these are extreme examples, we fall victim to it, right? And that, that is very significant, to have something that we know we need and struggle to achieve it. Strong implications in that for our, for our lives, right? Because what that tells us is that there are numerous things that we can do, but we shouldn't. You can eat these sorts of potato chips. You can eat cotton candy tacos to your heart content, but you shouldn't, right? It's this passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. And so what we begin to discover when we think about even just how our bodies respond to these simple things like eating and sleeping and, and exercising is that we were created with a purpose in mind. And now we can go against that purpose and we can do things that are detrimental to our health, but it doesn't change the fact that we were created with a design. Psalm 139 says we were fearfully and wonderfully made, right? And so you go back to Genesis and you look back to how God paints this masterpiece of creation and this refrain of goodness that continually comes to the page, right? He let there be light 
and it was good. Separates the land from the sea, and it was good. Creates sun and moon and stars, and it was good. Creates the, the plants and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and man and woman, and it was good. God looks back at all that he had made, and it was very good. Over and over again, we see that God creates this masterpiece with a good intent and a pleasant design. And then you get to chapter 2. Before the fall, before we have the rebellion, God looks back on this masterpiece and he offers a critique. One thing that as he takes in, he says, you know what, this right here, this isn't good. What is it? It is not good for man to be alone. Now we know that when he declares that, it leads us into the narrative on marriage, the creation of woman. And that's obviously a huge part of that passage, but there's something incredibly important and insightful that we see that God created us for relationship, not isolation. And that is a significant truth for us because we live in a culture that is filled with loneliness. And we can look around at all these different examples and we can know it's not good for us. And we can know, man, it would be so much better if I had community, if I had relationships. And though we know it, we still struggle so mightily to achieve it. Why? That's what I want us to explore this morning. To see the way in which we were beautifully designed for this perfect togetherness that God desires for us. So we're going to see a hint of that in Acts chapter 2. Let's continue reading Chapter 2, starting in verse 42, we're going to read the whole paragraph, and our focus verse is going to be verse 44. <clears throat> it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Verse 44 is our focus verse this morning. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That's such a significant verse. And it's so easy to run right past it to see, see it as just kind of a side note because so many of the things that happened before and after seem to be a little bit more intriguing and captivating. But it is incredibly significant. Let's look at just those first two words that are really kind of the main descriptors of this verse, together and common. Right? They more or less mean the same thing. Common means to have this mutual shared experience. Together means sameness or likeness. And it's basically a description of the relationship. Right? And we do this all the time, right? We use the, those same words to help use as a metric for relationships, right? Do you have anything in common? How many times do you go on a date? Do you fall in love? Do you try to pursue a friendship and you walk away and you go, you know, we just don't have anything in common. Or, wow, we had so much in common. We look for these mutual uh, experiences and this sameness that helps strengthen our bonds of relationship. So you meet people for the first time and you start fishing for those commonalities. You ask questions about their upbringing, where they're from, their family, their interests, what they do, and then you find something in common and it draws you closer. You love sports. Me too. And then you're good. You just keep on talking, right? And so we look for these common interests. It helps create this metric <clears throat> of relationships, right? And so what's interesting here is the totality with which these things are shared, right? And the significance with which these things are shared. Because more often than not, what can be accentuated in our society is, is differences, 
and distinctives rather than commonalities. Right? We, we continually champion the things that make us distinct, our race, our creed, our gender, our religion, whatever it is, and we try to define ourselves by distinctives and differences, and that makes relationships more difficult. And so what's happened here is a similar situation. Right? The early church was filled with differences. These people came from numerous different backgrounds, different life stages, different ages. Right? If you don't think they had things that they had to overcome, you're wrong. They had numerous things to overcome. And here the Bible says, no, they were all together and had everything in common. What was that commonality? Jesus. A shared belief in Jesus. And it was so much more than what we often attributed to it. Right? Like, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, you do too? Awesome. That's great. Right? You see, back then, it was more than just a shared belief. It was an understanding of who Jesus was, right? That this was more than just some idea to adhere to, that he was seen to be king of kings and lord of lords. He was coming to inaugurate this new kingdom. And to follow him could cost you your life, could cost you your family, could cost you your safety. And so when you decided to offer everything to him, it meant the world. And when you found somebody else that shared in that conviction, it brought you together. And that's why it's spoken with such totality in this verse. It's not just, you know, a few people got together and enjoyed each other's company, and they had a few things in common. It's all the believers were together and had everything in common. Why? Because Jesus is everything. And so what you have in verse 44, in many ways, is the antithesis of Genesis 2.18. That through Jesus, we no longer have to worry about loneliness and isolation. No, we are brought into the purpose for which we were designed, relationship and community. It's a significant implication for what the devoted life should create and foster. And so the question I have for us this morning, what I want us to pursue is, is this something that we can see in our world today? Is this something we practice? And, and honestly, what what we're going to discover is we're not going to have enough time to really wade as deeply into the subject as I would like. And so I I can promise you we're going to continue to discuss this uh, throughout the fall. Numerous things that I still think that we need to process in terms of what the implications are in terms of togetherness and what that means for us today. So my hope for this morning is that, that if we can at the very least create an awareness of just how entrenched we are in this society to pursue individualism, And how that's impacting us. If we can at least create that awareness, but then also see just how God has designed us and how much he desires community, then then that's at least a good first step. And we can explore later how do we pursue it and what are some of the practical implications of it. But at least today, let's create awareness. And so to do that, uh, I need to give credit to several authors that I read through the course of the summer. I read numerous books over the sabbatical. And what was interesting is is that I selected these books thinking I was going to be reading on different topics, but every single book had this common theme towards community. It was fascinating to me. And so a couple of books that I want to point out, uh, Sebastian Younger's Tribe, I'm going to be referencing a lot this morning, David Brooks's The Second Mountain. Uh, Those are both uh, not written from a faith perspective, more a cultural assessment. And then Walter Brueggemann's God, Empire, and Neighbor, which was also really, really fascinating. And I'm going to refer to him a little bit later in the message. And so for, for me, in some ways, The rest of this message feels a little bit like a book report. Uh, Most of what I'm paraphrasing and sharing with you is is attributed to them. I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, I'm going to read some of their quotes, but it was a very thought-provoking, 
exploration this summer. And, and so I want to begin with what Brooks is going to call this hyper-individualism that we face in our society. Right? And what he attributes, attributes it to is this revolution in the 60s. Right? For the last 50 to 60 years, we've really been living at this ethos of a hyper-individualistic society. And his point was, you know, in the 60s, it was all about a revolution, a rebellion. Right? You wanted to, to rebel against dogma and group conformity and, and politics and all these different things. And so all of a sudden, the individualism and the freedom that was always there kind of underneath the surface became the main idea. It became the central value that, that really kind of began to dictate society. And so you begin to promote these ideals of freedom, of autonomy, and authenticity, right? And it began to wear away at the fabric of our society. Now, he'll, he'll be quick to acknowledge, look, some of this was good and necessary. Right? We, we needed to, to break out of some of the traditions and some of the things that were happening in our culture and our society at that time. However, after 50 to 60 years of it, it's beginning to take its toll. Listen to the way he describes it. He says, for six decades, the worship of the self has been the central preoccupation of our culture, molding the self, investing in the self, expressing the self. Capitalism, the meritocracy, and modern social science have normalized selfishness. They've made it seem that the only human motives that are real are the self-interested ones, the desire for money, status, and power. When a whole society is built around self-preoccupation, its members become separated from one another divided and alienated. And that's what's happened to us. We are down in the valley. The rot we see in our politics is caused by a rot in our moral and cultural foundations and the way we relate to one another and the way we see ourselves as separable from one another in the individualistic values that have become the water in which we swim. His point is that it's all around us. Now, Younger is going to take it a step further and not just look at the last 50 to 60 years. He's going to look at it as really kind of a trend in modernity. He compares a lot of hunting and gathering tribes and some of the things of the past to where we are in modernity. And he says another contributing factor to this was the development of agriculture and industry. Right? That all of a sudden, as, as societies began to modernize, you had this new development towards private property privatization of things that you could own. You no longer were as or dependent upon people around you for your own livelihood. The idea of the common good began to weaken because you could be more self-sufficient. And so as a result, you became a little bit more isolated, a little bit more lonely. Right? And so now all of a sudden we have these, these virtues of autonomy, of freedom, of authenticity that continually get promoted in our culture. Right? We, we think about these values and you hear it <clears throat> in a variety of different ways, right? But here's the idea, right? Freedom is the ultimate ideal. Everyone is entitled to their own personal freedom. You have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So go do whatever makes you happy. The only rule is that your pursuit of happiness doesn't conflict with somebody else's pursuit of happiness. And we don't stop and think about how irrational that really is. Because guess what? At some point, they're going to conflict with one another. And so now it's the struggle of whose freedom is more important and who has the right to say. And so we have this, this premise that everyone's entitled to their own personal freedom. And not only that, you have autonomy. You're the one that gets to decide. No longer do you have to listen to what uh, the government says or what churches say or what institutions say. You get to define truth. You're your own moral uh, director. You're the only one that has to determine what's right and wrong. You get to be the ultimate authority 
You get to decide. And then that's the, the goal into authenticity. Right now on this, this journey of self-discovery, you need to be authentic. You get to decide who you are, what gender you are, what re- religion you are, what kind of ethics you want to have, what pursuits you want to have. It's all about you. You do you. Over and over again, we teach these ideas and reinforce this value of individualism through freedom, autonomy, and authenticity. Right? And so what I want to do is just try to work through different life stages to show you just how instinctively ingrained we are with some of these things. Okay, let me, let's start with infancy for a moment. Um, when, when we were expecting our first child, I don't know if people still do this anymore, uh, we read a lot of books. Um, what to expect when you're expecting um, and all those different things and you're kind of getting ready for what is it going to be like to care for a human. It's a very daunting realization for new parents. And then the human arrives. And then you realize, oh my goodness, this is very difficult. And so you read more books. And in particular, one of the things you really become obsessed with, at least we were, is sleep. How do I get this little creature to sleep the way I want to? And so you have all these books like Healthy Sleep Habits, Healthy Baby, Baby Wise, read all these different things. I don't know how many of y'all read those or have read those, but we did. And we bought in, man, for at least baby number one. We, we were into this. And all of a sudden, when you buy into it, nap time becomes like the major accomplishment of your day. And you are obsessed with it. You do not want to deviate from the schedule. You want to have the perfect environment. And the minute any of those things are threatened, you turn into a monster. You're like, he needs a nap! You know, and you just get super intense and you're yelling at each other and it's, it's just crazy. And so you get into this whole sleep routine. And it's a really fascinating concept when you really begin to explore. Now, let me just go ahead and say this as a disclaimer. Um, I'm smart enough to know that I'm not here to try to give parenting advice to a bunch of new moms, okay? It's not the goal. You do what you need to do with, with sleeping. But there's some very interesting things that we're trying to instill in our children, and Younger helps make this point. Okay, so here's part of what he says. He says, when you look at hunter, hunting and gathering societies, most studies will show that mothers will carry their children 90% of the time. 90% of skin-to-skin contact. A study was done in the 1970s, And in the 1970s, only 16% of American moms carried their children, or 16% of the time that moms carry their children. He said most of these traditional societies would look in at how little contact there was and probably see it as a form of child abuse and neglect. And so then we have this sleep habit. And part of the ideal is what? We need this child to sleep on their own. Self-soothe. And so we put all these ideas in place, and we put all these things together, and he again compares it. He says, in the 1980s, a study was done, and 85% of Americans had children sleeping in their own room at a very very young age. And when that study was geared towards the parents that were considered well-educated, the number rose to 95%. And he makes this interesting point. He says, only in Northern European and American societies have children been asked to sleep by themselves in such numbers. Only here. And what do we do? We give them blankets. We give them stuffed animals as a form of security because we know this is a critical time of bonding. And that's what we ask them to attach to, to the point that my daughter is seven. She still has the blanket that she had as an infant. Right? And we force these attachments. And he says, in all these other societies, children get their comfort and their sense of safety from the adults that are in the room with them. So from a very early age, what are we saying? you got to figure this out on your own. Be independent. Self-soothe. And part of it is because of our desire of our own independence, isn't it? 
because I need a break. I need time. And so we start is something as simple with sleep habits in infancy. Think about emerging adults. This is a, a, an example that Brooks brings up that I thought was pretty insightful. You have emerging adults, people that are about to graduate college and enter into a whole new season of adulthood. And he says, you know, we celebrate these achievements with different milestones or traditions like a commencement address. And we'll bring in famous people and successful people and they'll come in and they're going to give you this inspiring message of what to do next. And a lot of times they're just reiterating these values of freedom, autonomy, and authenticity. Your future is limitless. You can do anything you want. Dream big. Be audacious. Set your mind to it. And Brooks's point is this is actually more damaging to emerging adults because they've heard enough about freedom. And this just ups the pressure that what they're really looking for is direction. They're asking bigger questions. What am I supposed to do with my life and why? Not just more freedom. And so ultimately we, we champion these ideals and it feels empty and it creates this season of true wandering and detachment. He offers some statistics that right now the average American goes through seven jobs through the course of their 20s. Seven jobs. A third of emerging adults today are either underemployed, unemployed, or making less than $30,000 a year. The trend is to move every three years. It is the peak age for drug addiction and alcoholism. More than half would say that they don't have a plan for their life. Right? This is a season that is now marked with wandering, detachment, loneliness, heartbreak. You could go to the latest stages of life. I remember numerous conversations that my mom had with my grandmother when all of a sudden she reached an age where we were having to make some tough decisions. Can she still drive? Can she still live at home? And I remember the, 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 just the, the passion with which my grandmother would respond to those conversations, how hard it was for her to, to not drive anymore, to consider moving, because at every step it was what? A loss of independence. The fear of having to rely upon someone else to be a burden because her whole life she'd been trained. No, be self-sufficient. So at every life stage, church, this is what I'm trying to get us to see. It is ingrained within us, right? And we are living in a society that is constantly saying, be on your own. And what the scripture is saying, that's not good for you. And we're starting to see its effects, right? Younger makes a great point. He says, a person living in modern cities or a suburb can for the first time in history go through an entire day or an entire life mostly encountering complete strangers. They can be surrounded by others and yet feel deeply and dangerously alone. We're hitting all these different crises as a, as a result of this isolation. We're, we're hitting a crisis of loneliness, Right? Brooks provides numerous statistics. He says 35% of Americans over 45 are chronically lonely. Only 8%, listen to this one, only 8% of Americans report having important conversations with their neighbors in a given year. 8%. Can I just tell you, my hope for this church is that 100% of us are having important conversations with our, number, with our neighbors every month. But society, it's 8% in a given year. The fastest-growing political group is unaffiliated. Researchers in Britain have asked pastors to describe the most common issues that they have to address, and 66% say loneliness and mental health. So this is a, a fascinating development. 
that the more autonomy that we achieve, the more freedom we achieve, the more damaging it becomes to us on an individual level. Younger puts it in another way. He says, the evidence that this is hard on us is overwhelming. Although happiness is subjective and difficult to measure, mental illness is not. Numerous cross-cultural studies have shown that modern society, despite its nearly miraculous advances in medicine, science, and technology, is afflicted with some of the highest rates of depression, schizophrenia, poor health, anxiety, and chronic loneliness in human history. As affluence and urbanization rise in a society, rates of depression and suicide tend to go up rather than down. Rather than buffering people from clinical depression, increased wealth in a society seems to foster it. And so this crisis of loneliness is having a significant impact. Since 1999, the U.S. suicide rate has risen by 30%. Here's a very troubling one. Since two, between 2006 and 2016, suicide rates for those between the ages of 10 and 17 rose by 70%. 70. In 2018, the CDC uh, released a study that the average lifespan for an average American has contracted for the third consecutive year. That's astounding. The last time it's contracted in such a way was from 1915 to 1918. You know what was going on in 1915-1918? World War. And a flu pandemic that killed 675,000 Americans. So what researchers are attributing to now are what they're calling these deaths of distress. Suicide, drug overdoses, so on and so forth. We are in a crisis of loneliness, and it is literally killing us. It's creating distrust. Right? Some additional studies that I found in, in Brooks's book that I thought was pretty interesting. In the 1940s and 50s, more than 75% of Americans said that they trusted the government to do what was right most of the time. That number is now at 25%. We don't trust our government. We don't trust that they're going to do what's right. And it's not just our government that we don't trust. In that same study, in the same time period, it indicated that back then more than 60% of Americans trusted their neighbors and felt that their neighbors were trustworthy. Today, the number is 32%, 18% for millennials. 88% of millennials would say their neighbors are not trustworthy. And you know what? For good reason. Because people are less trustworthy. It's, it's, it's showing itself over and over again that because the relationships aren't there, it's easy to distrust someone now. It's easy to violate their trust. It's easy to betray them. So we don't trust each other anymore. We have a crisis of meaning, right? Church attendance has declined by more than 50% since the 1960s. We've turned away from any sort of moral compass or a common ideology or a common value system. Everybody is left to define it for themselves. And more often than not, when you're left to find meaning for life to yourself, you come up empty. So then we have this other crisis of hostility that Brooks points out. So what happens is we're feeling the effects of all these things and we know we need community, so then we find it, but we find it in the wrong way. Hostility. Right? Now we gravitate towards a tribe that will take us in and we find something that we can agree upon, but now our mutual shared experiences are a mutual hatred rather than a mutual affection. We have a common foe rather than a common friend. So we see this especially in politics, don't we? So we establish these barriers and these, these, these mentalities and these codes that we have to vigilantly defend. 
things that we say. This is how you got to define what is right and wrong in this society. And if you even begin to compromise it, you refuse to because to compromise it is now as if you're compromising your own identity. Because this is the only tribe where you really find some form of connection with. And so now politics is war. Gone are the days of civil discourse. Gone are the days of, of reasonable debate over ideas. No, this is my tribe, and my tribe must win. And we convene with each other with such hostility. Do I need to keep going? It is everywhere around us. Isolation. The fragmenting of relationships. Living in loneliness. What we have is a return to the garden. The heart of sin. Right? What was it? I wanted to find right and wrong for myself. I don't want to submit to God. I want to go this way. I want to go my own way. That's the heart of sin. To my own self be true. And so the question is, how do we find a way forward? Because the challenge within the church is that we see this as a crisis, and so we talk about community, but my fear is we talk about it in a very shallow way. Do life together. Have community. And we talk about it, but we foster it, and we promote it in a way that's still self-serving. You need friends because it's going to be good for you. Now you'll have somebody to hang out with. They'll help you, encourage you, and teach you. And it's all about you. And we create this shallow expression of it. And so now people fill their lives with thousands of lunch dates and coffee dates. And they'll have numerous conversations and still feel alone. They'll build these massive webs on social media with thousands of likes and mentions and retweets and all this other stuff. And the minute they turn off their phone and the minute they shut down their computer, they feel empty. Because it's a shallow expression of the togetherness that we were designed for. If we return to the garden, to your own self, be true. And that's where Brueggemann comes in and reminds us this is not how God designed us. This is not what he desires. Brueggemann introduces this word fidelity. I love the way he defines it. Let me see if I can find it for you real quick. The way he defines fidelity, he says the resolve of loyalty that is undeterred and unimpeded by the most unbearable of circumstances. He says that's the sort of relationship you've been called to. Fidelity to God and fidelity to the neighbor. The way Younger defines tribe, I love his definition of tribe. He says, the simplest definition of community is the group of people that you would both help feed and defend. Right? And I love that because that's more than just, hey, I'm going to help feed you when you've had a baby or when you've lost a loved one or, or I'm just going to bring you a meal from time to time. It's so much more than that. What it's saying is, is that if you are ever in jeopardy, I'm going to care for your livelihood. You can come into my home. I'm going to make sure you have food, even if it means I go without. If you're threatened, if you're worried, if you're concerned, I'm going to rise up and defend you. That's togetherness. What kind of relationships do you have in your life that reflect that sort of community? How many people that in a moment's notice you say, I'm going to help feed and defend you? I'm going to feel undeterred, unimpeded, and regardless of the most unbearable circumstances to remain committed to you. That's the sort of togetherness that God calls us to and he desires just for us to have with him and to the neighbor. And so that's what Brueggemann points out. He says, here's what every empire has had in common. Right? You can see it reflected in Egypt and throughout the pages of history. Right? We can see it in our society today, but when we go back and we look, what do we see? There is no neighbor in Egypt. Right? In Egypt, in the rise of an empire, there's either threats, 
There's convenient allies or there's dispensable labor. And that's how people are viewed. And so God steps into Egypt and he says, I'm going to set you free from that. I refuse for you to see each other in that light. I'm going to set you apart to be my people and I'm going to make you radically reconcerned for the community and for relationship. He calls us to a radical, unyielding love for the other. That's who our God is. And that's what he demands of us is to have this radical, unyielding love for him and for the neighbor. It allows us to reach to any area of the world, to any area of community, and call people in and bring us together. It's the sort of God we serve. It's the sort of people we should be. I love the way that Brueggemann summarizes it. He says, It is evident in every case with God, with Israel, with the church, that the reach to the other, the ultimate fidelity, is a reach that redefines the reacher. So God, in a reach beyond self to creation, to Israel, to poor, becomes a different God. So Israel, in its reach toward widows, orphans, and immigrants, becomes a different kind of chosen people. And so the church, in the spirit-led reach to Gentiles, becomes a different kind of community. It is not to thine own self be true. It is rather to the farthest reach of the other be true. Amen? That's what he's called us to. To give ourselves to the other. That's how we were designed. That's the way that we were created. And so let me make a quick connection and then, and then wrap us up. The reason we talk about these arenas of corporate worship or Sunday Connect or discipleship groups is more than just to have a program. It's more than just to have some convenient way for us to check attendance to see how involved you are. We believe fundamentally that every single one of us needs deep, meaningful relationship. And I know that each and every one of you at some point is going to say, I know I need it, but gosh, that's hard. And it's so much easier just to focus on myself. And you can choose that path, but I'm here to tell you, it's not good for you. We have to choose togetherness. I want to tell you a quick story to help summarize this, and then we'll be done. A couple years ago, I, I felt convicted that I wasn't going and connecting and sharing my faith the way that God would desire. And so I, I made a commitment. I was like, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to figure out how to do this. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do it. I had other people teach me. I, I watched them. And over the last three to four years as I've tried to commit to doing that, I've learned a lot. Um, I can't tell you how humbling it is to go and talk to somebody, share the gospel, and ask him, have you ever heard that before? And then to look you in the eye and say, no. It's the first time. And how eye-opening that can be. And I've still got a lot to learn. It is a difficult thing to do. But as we've gone out to different places, <clears throat> I've seen a common theme. Uh, there, not too long ago, I was going out pretty regularly to Times Square Apartments. Times Square is a place where we regularly provide tutoring for kids throughout the year. We do VBS over there. And so I was making a commitment to just follow up with the community and the neighbors. And I would always go in and, and ask, you know, the Lord to, I would always take somebody with me and I asked the Lord, like, let us have a good conversation. Let somebody invite us in and let's just try to connect in a meaningful way. One time we went there and we knocked on this door and the guy that was sitting inside just yelled, come in. Didn't even come to the door. And I was like, well, that's an answer prayer. That's nice. And so I opened the door. And as soon as I opened the door, uh, the stench hit both of us in the face. And I could see this man sitting in his, 
his chair, and it was clear he hadn't moved in a long time. He had uh, somewhat of a wheelchair next to him that would allow him to move if he ever needed to. He had a trash can by him, towels underneath him, TV on, very unkept. And he invited us in, and we, we came in closer, and I, I started talking to him. And as I was sitting nearby him, I could actually see little bugs crawling on his chair and on him. And that's the sort of state that he was in. And so I started asking stories, asking questions. Come to discover that his wife had died 10 years before. They had had two children. Um, One of his children had mental disabilities, and so he had no relationship there. And his other son lived in Bryan, and they were very disconnected. But he said, you know, but my son's trying to get me back closer to him so he can help take care of all my health concerns. And then he just went into a list of health concerns. And you realize, as he was talking, how he just kind of fell into a pretty challenging state. And so I started talking to him about Christ. I started talking to him about his faith. He was a believer. He he talked about moments where he used to love going and singing in different places. And and I asked him, I said, man, what's one of your favorite songs you used to sing? And he told me the name of it. I can't remember it now. And so I got my phone out and I pulled it up. And I said, well, hey, let me read these lyrics to you. And I read those lyrics to him. And by the time I was finished, tears were filled in his eyes. And he said, man, I needed to hear that today. So we prayed with him. I checked in on him from time to time as we went back. But I walked out that day and I thought, that is not what God desires. He's a believer, he's a brother, and he's completely alone. What's happened? And what I discovered is I've had the opportunity to meet new people and go into these conversations, I find the same thing. Whether you have never heard of Jesus or you've heard him before, everyone is longing for and needing community. We're desperate for it. And if we want to be a church that's serious about discipleship, if we truly want to live into that identity, if we want to go and engage this community and engage ourselves but make no space for community, we have failed before we've even begun. So let me remind you, church, of how God has created you. Let me remind you of just how important it truly is. We could turn through all the pages of the Old Testament to see time and time again how God calls us to be mindful of the orphan and the widow and the immigrant, how he puts it within the very laws with which society is supposed to be built for those chosen people. We could go to the New Testament and we could read 1 John together and talk over and over again of how we're supposed to love one another. But let's go to Jesus. Let's consider his words for a moment. We're in the Gospel of John. He says, my command is this. Love one another as I have loved you. No greater love has any man than this than the one who would lay down his life for his friends. That's the sort of love that we should carry towards each other and to the community. It's the love of the cross. So if you're sitting there and you're wondering like many people did before, you want to come before Jesus today and say, Jesus, out of all the things you've asked me to do, out of all the commands, what's the most important? His answer is the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And as soon as you hear it and you begin to walk away and say, I got it, I'll go do that. He says, in one other thing, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you could walk away from that thinking, okay, I need to love God and I can love others. But maybe, just maybe, what Jesus is saying is the way that you show you love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind is by loving your neighbor as yourself. 
That's the sort of togetherness that we are, we are called to. That's the way of the cross, and that has to be the cry of the church, to love one another as Christ has loved us. Amen? Amen. So let's go, church, with a radical and unyielding love for everyone who is around us. Let us be a set of church, just like we see here in 44, that all of us would be together and have everything in common for the sake of the king. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we're grateful for all that you're doing in our lives, and we confess, God, that there are so many ways and so many times that we choose to go our own way, that we choose what is convenient and what is comfortable, rather than choosing to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others. And so help us, Father, to love as you would have us to love. Help us, Father, to be a church that embodies this sort of togetherness that can only be achieved through the cross. Let us go with a radical and unyielding love for each and every person that we encounter and open up our hearts and open our minds so that we can exalt you. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.